Hey everybody, this is Zoya. And this is Annie. Welcome back to Cortado Cafe. Um, if you guys have noticed, which some of our friends actually have, surprisingly, um, basically I was in Madrid for the past five months studying abroad and Annie was here completing her senior year of college. She just graduated. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but basically because of that um, time difference and the busyness of our respective schedules have unfortunately got the better of us. But now it's summer and we're both in New York. So, uh, Annie, what are we going to be talking about today? The idea of multiple or parallel universes. Have you ever heard of this? Um, when you talked about it, I could recognize in certain films or in certain popular culture representations of that, but I had no clue until we talked about it that it was actually a principle in science that, that theoretical physicists are actually studying. Um, so Annie and I were talking before about, you know, for our second episode, what do we want to do? And Annie just goes... I've been, I've been researching the multiverse. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> um, but we've, we've been talking about it, and it's, I think it's really fascinating. Annie, if you want to yeah. go into that. No, thank you. I definitely should preface by saying that I am not a physicist by any means, but someone who is interested in physics. And so if you'd like to learn more after this podcast, I definitely suggest researching or learning and reading up on your own. Um, but what I mean by the multiverse, there are so many definitions to it, and they're kind of conflicting. But one of them is um, parallel universes. So that's our typical concept of having parallel worlds where we might be leading different lives. And the other is bubble universes, where the universe that we live in right now is just one universe, and once this ends, another one that houses life will begin. So... The reason why I brought it up and the reason why I was so intrigued by it is because our imaginations are, if not liberated, seduced by the idea of multiple potentialities. So a lot of reporters recently have been capturing our popular interest by writing articles about how we could be married to one celebrity in one universe and then um, single with cats in another. And which is more likely for us, Annie? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think... You know, I'm trying to be as accessible as possible and think about how you all might be thinking about the multiverse. So, uh, but just very briefly looking at the field of theoretical physics, which is simply the field of physics that uses mathematical models to look at predictive phenomena. That's very different from the rest of physics, which is considered more of an experimental science where things get tested out and um, observed in the external world, whereas theoretical physics get to really have a bit more fun and be more abstract in that way. So back in the 1970s, I'm going to go on a historical spiel over here. Um, we're ready, we're ready. <laughs> <laughs> so theoretical physicists were uncertain about the spatial distribution of matter um, and why it was so homogeneous and isotropic over the universe. If you don't know those terms, it's fine. It's just very confusing for physicists at that time. The first person who proposed an idea was Alan Guth back in 1979. By the way, I should preface by saying that we're sitting outside of Lincoln Center. We're sat on a ledge. By the way, I have a fear of heights, so if I sound at all scared in this podcast, I 100% am. Um, but this preface is important because you guys will probably hear some um, background noise like traffic and people and while we're going to do our best to edit that out neither of us are particularly skilled in that so please forgive us and just try to listen anyway <laughs> we apologize in advance and we <laughs> hope that you feel like you're with us right now yeah okay so back to alan guth in 1979 um he concluded that inflation was a point in time where repulsive gravity was the propulsive bang of the Big Bang, right? And so that pushed everything to rapidly and exponentially expand. And then there's another theoretical physicist named Andre Linde, 
um, or Lindy, and his colleagues later took inflation further one stop to create the inflationary multiverse theory. It's really a handful. Um, so is this the one that you were referring to as like the different bubbles? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's more related to pocket and bubble universes rather than parallel. There's this one physicist called Alexander Vilenkin who explains it in Scientific American that while inflation ended 13.7 billion years ago for us, it continues in remote parts of the universe and other normal regions like ours are constantly being formed. And so these new regions appear as tiny microscopic bubbles that immediately start to grow. And these bubbles keep growing without bound and make room for other bubbles to form a kind of internal inflation. That's really interesting. So kind of, you know, to try and break it down, or at least I'm kind of thinking out loud here. So what you're saying is, this guy is saying that the universe, our universe at least, it's been created, it's been formed, and now it's kind of done developing. But just because our universe is done developing doesn't mean others are. So although we're living in ours, which is fully developed, yeah. there are all of these other bubbles where there are other universes that are continually forming. Yeah. Um, not necessarily for our form of life, but just in general, right? Right, exactly. It's, it's pretty it's, wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I thought that, you know, reading that was really extraordinary to sort of imagine beyond our own universe and think about other instances where life could form. Um, and so, like Zoya said, these pocket universes, maybe the very fundamental laws of physics in each pocket universe is actually different. And so we wouldn't see what we would know here on this earth and in this universe. So that kind of changes the fundamental laws of physics oh, in and of sure. themselves. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. I know, right? <laughs> I hope you guys are just as excited about this as I am. But I really think this changes things, and which is why the multiverse needs to be included in, in physics, you know, as a legitimate topic of study. So as you were saying about your example earlier about when one universe you can you can be married to a celebrity and another you can be like single with cats and it kind of it almost makes fun of the idea yeah. and kind of makes it just sound like really silly yeah. but like actually hearing you talk about it um, it's it's really cool that this is a theory that's embedded in, in theoretical physics and yeah, the definitely. fact that you know like you said it it's a really valuable area of study that I feel like we should all be more informed about not just through those popular media perceptions. Definitely. Yeah, and we'll talk a bit more about that later. But I would definitely want to mention that there are some criticisms of the multiverse, and um, some of them are just like the fact that there are restraints on the multiverse theory and that currently no empirical evidence exists. It's like this physicist called George Ellis, and he sees the lack of evidence and ability to measure critical components of the multiverse as not good for science. But we can bring in STS here. A lot of historians of science have shown that theories can get ahead of observation. Wait, sorry, can we just remind our listeners what STS is for those outside of our college community? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so it, but what it is is a science, technology, and society, and it looks into the intersections of science and tech in society and their consequences and implications on each other. And by the way, that's what Annie majored in in undergrad, so just for context. I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> no, 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 thank you for doing that. So a lot of historians of science uh, who also study STS have concluded that theories get ahead of observation in science uh, and evidence, excuse me. So without theories, science would not exist. Um, and there have been so many instances where theory predates any collection of evidence, but usually theory has to come from people who notice patterns and signal out the noise. Um, just a little tangent. I love when people talk about sing signal and noise because that's a really big thing in neuroscience, right? So you can have all of this electrical and neural activity. Uh, and when you look at a recording, you can see all of these random things that might look like firing. But because so many things are happening in the network, 
a lot of times people are like, oh, you have to know how to pick out the signal, i.e. the actual neural activity, from the noise. And I just think it's also just a really nice metaphor for kind of approaching the world, you know, signal and noise. It's great. I think that it's a wonderful <laughs> like language to have. But definitely the focus on external evidence has put some serious sociological limitations to pushing beyond. Um, so Andre Lindy, the physicist that I mentioned before, wrote that his editor had actually recommended him to delete parts of his writing, saying that otherwise he would lose the respect of his colleagues. And so, yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk about for a second, kind of going off that, the social pressure in, in science. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing to note that's really prevalent, that, but that a lot of people don't talk about. And I've kind of mentioned this in our last episode, and I just tap, like, I talk about this a lot. But the concept that science is not objective, yeah. um, you know, meaning that a lot of times, so why do we study what we study? Maybe there are political pressures, maybe there are societal pressures. But then even from that, what is being published? You know, you might have like 10 findings, but you might not publish all findings, maybe depending on social pressures, depending on what is, you know, fitting within our scientific environment at the moment. Um, You know, editors might pressure scientists to to only publish like four of those results and saying that inclusion of the others could cause, like you kind of mentioned, ostracization within within the scientific community. Right. And that's something that I think really needs to be talked about more. So, yeah, Lindy had said that, you know, in the first decade of uh, his research into inflationary multiverse theory, he felt really lonely and all alone, and his publisher worried about him losing status and credibility in the field. That's so sad. Isn't it sad? That's very sad. Oh my god, he'd be the multiverse guy who's single with cats. Oh no! (laughs) We don't want that. We don't want that. We're all here for you, Lindy. Yes, Lindy, you got this. Um, I do think that there, you know, there are so many arguments from across the uh, spectrum in physics, Um, But a lot of physicists don't see the utility of exploring the notion of a multiverse. They say that there's no direct use of the notion. Um, And that kind of an argument is made a lot. And I'm not saying that it's not true, right? There are certain things that are more important that we need to be, like, talking about. But it's really becoming an issue in the field where the difference between applied science and pure science, meaning application-based science, would be if you're looking for a clinical cure for something or, you know, there's an immediate application to be found within the research that you could apply to society versus pure science, which is just studying things to study them and just understand them better. And maybe application will come from it one day and maybe it won't. But that kind of a distinction now, it's, you know, it's so much harder to, to get grants for pure science, to publish pure science. Um, and as you're saying, it's, that's a lot of really valuable knowledge that we could be losing. Right, exactly. And also, I think just the best argument that I could find for the multiverse is that, you know, if the laws of physics are different in each universe, then even just mathematically, it implies that our laws of physics can't be derived from the first principles, which inside themselves derive from nothing else except for themselves. And so the existence of a multiverse would mean that our laws of physics are partly environmental, and that really changes the game. Yeah. So, I also think the multiverse, like switching gears, less into the more like less in, less pedantic. <laughs> um, I think it's a decent entry point into talking about how scientists explore ideas like the multiverse and how readers sometimes take on scientific ideas and give them new meanings. Um, for instance, there's this philosopher called Peter Brox, and he explores. Um, TV, radio, and all kinds of media sources to show how images and narratives of the gene in popular culture reflect a message of genetic essentialism and how the gene has become a symbol, a metaphor uh, to define personhood and identity. 
Do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> you know I do. Yeah. You know I do. <laughs> this is also something that I talk about a lot, um, but the concept of identity politics these days, so whether that would be sexuality, whether you're talking about race and all of these different things, identity politics is largely based these days in the gene, right, and in research. And if you think about it, that's so terrifying to me. Like, I mentioned this in our last episode, mm-hmm. but the fact that there's there are research studies being done right. on brains of gay men to yeah. see, like, let's look at the size of their hippocampus and see, you know, how that compares to the size of a, a woman's hippocampus and, you know, is that where their, their sexuality comes from and all of these things. And look, I'm not saying that I believe that there's zero genetic basis. Maybe there is. Right. But why do we care? Yeah. Why are we so invested? Why... Yeah. Have we made the genes such a metaphor in our society that without almost like it's validation, there's no, there's no value or like you can't, it's almost like you, you need to justify things through the gene. Yeah. I don't know. I just think that's as much as believe me, I love genetics. I think it's so cool, but it's just so scary to me that it's taking on this whole new meaning in our society. Right. That is so important. I'm really glad that you touched on that and that you have that perspective. Um, but yes, I you know for like what kind of metaphorical use does the multiverse have for us? Uh, what kinds of narratives and images will we have for the multiverse? We already have a bunch for the gene, so I'm just curious to see how that will occur. But and hopefully in a more positive fashion yes. in the case of the multiverse. <laughs> Let's hope so. Um, I think just looking back to like personal um, my personal reading and uh, maybe in more like the artistic sense, there have been. Um, fantasy novels uh, that have described fictional worlds that include characters that live within a past world or a pocket world on Earth. Like, if you can think of Narnia by C.S. Lewis or um, Middle Earth by Tolkien. So kind Um, of both of our childhoods. Yes, basically. (laughs) I mean, these imaginative possibilities touch on parallel lives. And even now in the 21st century, we have um, movies like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and also, been meaning to watch that. Yes, <laughs> it's a great movie. Please go watch it. Um, and also Avengers Endgame um, that talks about quantum entanglement. So I think... Just casually. Just, quantum entanglement. You know, quantum. as one does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great plot device. Um, but I think it was Brock who said that popular science comes from the ordinary people's extraordinary will to engage with the world of science and tech. And it wants us to go into space but keep our feet on the ground. I really like that idea of, you know, having that ability to to go and explore and, you know, look for, for new ideas, um, but while the same, at the same time really keeping our feet in the ground, staying grounded so that you can take those new ideas and, you know, bring them back to our earth and yeah. bring them back to our society and how you can integrate them into one's own life. Um, a little bit tangential and something that I might go into the in the next episode is how, you know, my time in Madrid, I feel like I have been gaining... Um, different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of skills through my experiences there and I've been I've been telling Annie lately how one of the things I've been struggling with is okay I've learned certain things but how do I integrate them back in, into my regular life here in, here in New York you know um, but anyway back to the multiverse no 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 <laughs> I definitely am looking forward to our next episode where you can hear a bit more about Zoya's experience abroad um, and yeah I just can't wait uh, for her to talk about that and also another researcher that sort of bridges the two things. 
Yeah, so this is kind of something that's related to what you're talking about, the multiverse, although maybe only generally so. Um, But when you were first talking about the multiverse, well, my first question to you is, Annie, what the hell is a multiverse? (laughs) And then I looked at some notes that you had from like a paper you'd written and, you know, we riffed off of each other. We talked about it for a while before recording this, just so I felt like I could have, you know, at least a basic understanding. Um, but sometimes something that really hits me about science, and I, you know, I know it hits everybody, is in the sense of science versus humanities, whether that's a field of study in school, whether outside of it. The humanities as a field is just prevented, uh, prevented, sorry, presented <laughs> as just so much more accessible, right? right? The idea of like, oh, anybody can go into the humanities. Right. But there's so many walls around STEM and science in general. Um, And something that I've been thinking about a lot as somebody who wants to hopefully go into science one day, but also is still very, you know, fascinated and intrigued by all of the worlds of the different kinds of humanities is, you know, one, people people look at scientists and they're like, oh, this scientist is just just like random genius. All they do is like live in a lab, whatever. but scientists are people too. Yeah. And I've had the opportunity to, to be in different research labs for you know different times of my life in the summer or whatever. And people in, in science labs, they're, they're <laughs> funny, they're cool, but they're real people, yeah. you know? And science, it's creative, man. It's not just like, a, I'm just gonna sit and collect my data. Yeah, you do that. But it's like, how do you decide what you wanna collect? That's right. like a big thing. Yeah. And another thing that really bothers me is a lot of people in science write, right? But yeah. what do they write? A lot of times they're writing science things, things about their research, things about science in general. Yeah. And I think it's cool. Um, but also part of me is like, come on guys, you are so creative. And I just wish you guys would write about things that are not science right. and are you know, humanizing science, humanizing you. Yeah. Um, I just feel like I would love to see more people in science who are, yeah, who are writing about science, but who are also writing about the most random things. Exactly. And I know I've mentioned this before, yeah. but I'm a big fan of Siddhartha Mukherjee. Um, I, yeah, yeah, you know, it is what it is. Yes. But one of the things that I like about him is, look, you know, he just wrote a book called The Emperor of Malady. It's about cancer. He's done research on that. It's really cool. It's written like a novel, but, you know, it's still science-based. But then he has a piece in The New Yorker um, about how he lost his dad. And that was a really personal thing, and it, it wasn't written in, in any form of a clinical language. Um, and just being able to have both like that, I think that's really valuable. And then one more thing on my little rant. Um, I About half a year ago, I was doing some research, as I do. Every, Annie knows that every so often, I just go onto Google, and I just type in random combinations that I want to see. <laughs> so like, neurosurgeon, photojournalist, and just like random shit like that. Yes. And I came across this researcher online called Spadini Samarasinghe. Um, sorry if I mispronounced that. There's a kind of big chance I did. But she's so cool to me. So basically, she's a molecular biologist who specializes in cancer research. But she has a, a website in which she writes, In my spare time, I moonlight as a science communicator by making science more accessible to the public. I do this by de-jargonizing research papers and debunking sensationalized science reporting in the media. And I think that's so cool because going back to where this all started of the whole multiverse thing, you know, despite the fact that I'm a STEM student and I really think this stuff is cool, it took me and Annie like 30 minutes of kind of chatting for me to even get the most basic sense. And if Annie wasn't so excited about the universe, I might, um, the universe, the multiverse, (laughs) sorry, I might have not had the motivation to go and learn that. And I think there's so many people who are not in science who are afraid 
of different terminology and I get it research is specialized and you know someone can be a top researcher in their field in neuroscience and then go to read something about cardiac medicine and be confused as hell and have to like review everything so the whole concept of g-jargoning research like that it's incredibly important and you know whether you're publishing it in a, a magazine like scientific american where look it's already kind of geared towards people who have some basic interest in science or if we're just publishing that you know normally in, in different media outlets i think that's really important and then another thing that I think is almost even more interesting that she does is desensationalizing science. Yeah. Um, and just the concept that there are so many times where in the best of intentions, the media will take a scientific finding, but they'll make it sound like, oh my God, we're three steps away from finding a cure to this cancer. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, just kind of presenting it as it's so immediate and it's gonna happen so soon and this is what this finding means. But it's really sensationalized because you know, it's so much more than that. You know, maybe it sounds like three steps, but maybe those three steps will take 20 years. Right. And just kind of almost misleading people into thinking um, that things are more immediate than they are or, you know, really kind of rephrasing things to make it more simplistic, but in, in that kind of losing some of the really important points of science. Yeah, no, I loved your rant. <laughs> so, Sorry. <laughs> no, I think uh, that's a really great place to just end right now. Yeah. Like, it previews what we're going to talk about in our next podcast. So, yeah, can't wait. Tune back in to hear about me and Madrid and science yeah. and writing Yes. and Annie. No, let's hear all about Zoe next time. <laughs> okay. We're kidding, I promise. All right, all right. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye.